0: What is the parallax view about? That is an excellent question. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, and welcome to the episode 7 Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on 7 Nation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. Thomas, I'm happy to have you back. We've had a little bit of a break this month, two, two, two episodes. I haven't had you. You
1: know, I was busy establishing a journalism career of my own. <laughs> yeah,
0: you, you did, want, you did. I actually. don't want
1: to go too. I don't want to go too deep into it, but I was featured in Rolling Stone magazine as an anonymous source this week. So, I am deep throat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the deep throat of TikTok.
0: And if you think we're joking, we're not. What was the other one? Reddit sleuth, I think was the other name. Yeah, got, it was someone? also
1: yeah, credited as. A Reddit sleuth.
0: (laughs) Those years of Reddit have finally paid off, Thomas. They're Mm -hmm. finally coming in handy.
1: And no one will ever know.
0: Except the people that listen to this. You know the truth, guys. And speaking of truth, that's what we're going to be talking about. About movies where they seek the truth today. Uh, Today's episode is our final episode in our month-long journey through the journalism film genre. And like the majority of our months, we are focusing on a director that has worked heavily within our genre of the month. For this episode, we'll be discussing Alan J. Pakula, director of such films as Sophie's Choice, and the famous Paranoia Trilogy, which included Clute, Parallax View, and All the President's Men. Before we do that, Thomas, can you give us a brief recap of what we've talked about this month regarding kind of the, the tropes and stories of the journalism genre?
1: Yeah, we've talked a lot about journalism ethics. Uh, you know, we've, we've discussed that there are some films that deal just with journalism ethics, but... We've also seen kind of how those ideas are, permeate all the subgenres of the journalism genre, whether it's, you know, these kind of investigative uh, pieces where it's more about kind of being a detective, it's almost like a detective film, or even if it's something like a rom-com. We talked about broadcast news and how much the question of ethics affected the relationship between those three people who were in a love triangle, but they were also in like a like warring views of journalism yeah. triangle um, at the same time uh so that's that's something that that's kind of throughout all of these movies is you know what what makes a journalist and especially these movies and, and we'll see this 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 week especially is in these movies where a journalist is essentially playing the role of detective what separates a journalist from a detective you know who has a who has a stronger code of ethics who who can go further yeah and who has you know a greater responsibility
0: i mean in comparison i think about it now it's like a detective when you're trying to put a case together you have to find evidence to put this person away or put this get this person to trial get them arrested and with journalism it's a similar thing where you have to find evidence but you have to find sources that can basically confirm this story that you're trying to print. It's a very, you have to, you have to really think about a lot of different things of like what can be printed and what can't be printed. So coming into this one, I I've been aware of many of Alan Pakula or Alan J Pakula's work had been tempted to cover him for a while. I knew we, we had talked about doing journalism movies for kind of a while. And I knew that was the director we're going to have to kind of talk about because I think all the President's men is a masterpiece And uh, we've we've mentioned it earlier in the month, but like many filmmakers, he's made movies that I he's made a a number of classics, but he's also made some movies that are a little bit mediocre. Um, (laughs) But even in movies like that, he was oddly able to help mold several wonderful performances with actors and actresses, specifically actresses. Um, Many of his actresses were nominated or won Oscars for their work at Pakula's film. Um, he became known as this actor's director, and what's so it's so fascinating to me is being an actor's director and being this kind of like paranoia-driven, almost genre-esque type movies. And uh, he became so well known for just how to work with the actor, and the two big ones that won Oscars would be Jane Fonda and Clute and Meryl Streep and Sophie's Choice, which, as I watched last night, many people consider one of the greatest like performances of all time is Streep in that Mm -hmm. film. And she's amazing. Um, So yeah. So what, like what were your thoughts on Pakula before coming into this? Like, what did you kind of grasp about his work?
1: I mean, I, I had seen, like you said, many of his, his big ones. I obviously, I love Sophie's choice. I've seen it multiple times. Same with all the president's men and, and Clute as well. But you know, I hadn't really put together the, the through line. I, I knew he had had, you know, his paranoia trilogy, but when you brought him up as, as our director for journalism month, I, w- I was like, Oh, well he did all the president's men, but it's, it's interesting looking through his work. And especially with that, with that paranoia trilogy, we'll talk about comes this like distrust of the system. So a lot of these yeah. movies that could be detective movies become, you know, even before he had done all the president's men, these movies that could be detective movies, Instead, become journalist movies because he sees journalists as as people who are a little bit more free yeah of the system than 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 police would be, you know. And I think there'd probably be a lot of people today who would disagree with him on that.
0: Yeah, they have. Yeah, I think he has this idea like a, a journalist has. To, he serves the people. They mm. the pe- they they are truth seekers and they seek to tell the truth to the American public in this context of journalist. Um. And that could be about anything that could be about, uh, the, what Watergate, or that could be about in Parallax view, kind of the assassination that happens about the truth about this assassination. That's very reminiscent of JFK or in the Pelican brief. It's the, it's why a judge was killed or two judges were killed in that movie. Um, so there's a lot of different things that he's kind of, he's kind of playing with, but like he also did movies that were out of that genre. And I know we watched uh, a little snippet from the Clute uh, Criterion Blu-ray of uh, film historian Annette Ensdorf, who kind of talked about how in her class, it's 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 interesting, with, with this show, we talk about a lot of people that we would consider auteurs, and auteurs are considered usually these people who write, direct, produce all their work, or it's a very simple through line, but some auteurs don't have that clear path through their work. And Pakula's is kind of one of them, where you really have to search and find that his voice in there sometimes. But there's still mm. a similarity between them all, specifically the Paranoia trilogy. But even when you go to pelkin Brief later, I think it's a much lesser version of those films. But it does feel like it's in the same vein, specifically in the visual style of it that's trying to do. Um, so, yeah, so we we watched a good bit of Pakula films for this episode. I guess now should I dive into who Alan Pakula was how, how his early yeah. beginnings? so let's a- do it. Alan J. Pakula. his middle name was actually j j a y Alan J. Pakula was born on April seventh, nineteen twenty eight in Bronx, New York. He was born into a Polish Jewish family that lived the new uh, long Island in New York City for the majority of his upbringing. It seems. his parents were Jeanette's original name. Goldstein, Jeanette Goldstein, not the person we covered, we talked to on the show uh, months back, but <laughs> Jeanette and Paul pakula Paul owned and operated a printing business in New York City. Allen attended the theater frequently because he lived in New York, often by himself, and was taken by what he saw. And he decided that he wanted to be an actor. His parents, however, foresaw a career. He they wanted him to be in medicine, be a doctor or own the father's business of the printing business, which Paul wanted to keep in the family. With these various aspirations for their son, Alan's parents decided to send him uh, to the Bronx High School for science for gifted students. Then for his last year of high school, he went to prep school in Pennsylvania. Um, After that, he decided to attend Yale University for college, where he majored in drama. Um, during the summer before college in 1945, Alan had an internship at New- a New York the- theatrical agency, and the job consisted mainly of delivering scripts to actors. <clears throat> but he took advantage of the opportunity to read them all, which he later recalled as when I realized I was hooked. When McCullough got graduated with a degree in drama in 1948, he announced his intention to his family to move to Hollywood and become a movie director, asking his parents to give him a little bit of time to follow his dream. Give him like two years. <laughs> uh, they agreed and through a friend of his father's he was offered a job in the animation department the cartoon department at warner brothers um in the evenings pakula directed at an amateur theater company in los angeles and i think produced some stuff in, in new york as well um his job at warner brothers led him to a job offer two years later in 1950 from a producer at mgm which later took him to paramount where he served as an assistant to a producer his first pro- or first or our was assistant to the head of production is what it was actually um his first production assignment was in 1955 on a film called fear strikes out about the real life bipolar baseball player jimmy Purcell, which was directed by robert mulligan and we talked about that uh on our baseball episode way mm-hmm. back like a year or so ago year and a half ago um yeah francois, francois Truffaut, one of the many people of the french new wave uh said because it was fear strikes out was directed by robert mulligan it was his first directorial debut and pakula's uh, pr- uh producer debut francois truffaut said it was one of the the best debut american debuts uh of all time i believe wow this film become the first project from the pakula and mulligan team for over the next decade throughout most of the 60s uh pakula would produce while mulligan would direct seven films they directed they they worked on seven films together in like an 11 year span some of these films included love with the proper stranger and inside daisy clover which starred Mm -hmm. natalie wood Uh, but their most famous film was the 1962 film adaptation of harper lee's to kill a mockingbird oh wow yeah the film would garner eight oscar nominations including best picture for pakula as the film's sole producer he would be i believe 34 at this time give or take okay dude um yeah so he did they had a a a great uh uh collaboration and i i really love robert mulligan i think he's a director that's kind of i'm not going to put all of his films on the same level as say some of pakula's masterpieces but i think he made a several kind of underrated kind of undiscovered gems uh some of which were produced by pakula i think i actually got him a section at cinephile video by the way that was one thing i did there when i worked there i was like hey guys we need a robert mulligan section and they actually <laughs> listened um after working with mulligan for 11 years pakula decided to venture out and become a film director i believe pakula had said once that he should have left earlier to direct but he enjoyed working with mulligan just way too much so he steps in into direct the first movie he directs is a movie called *The Sterile Cuckoo*, released in 1969. The film starred Liza Minnelli, another recurring character on this podcast from our Bob Fosse mm-hmm. episode, uh, and it told the story of an eccentric couple whose relationship deepens despite their differences and inadequacies. Very kind of late '60s relationship drama type yeah. movie. Like, kind of, I think they're on college, like college, I think, or so. Um, The film received critical praise, especially for Minnelli. It was her second starring role, and she received her first Oscar nomination of her career for the film, establishing Pakula's track record with working with actors and actresses for his career and prompting or or, uh, propping them up or, or helping mold a performance that would be Oscar worthy, as they would say. The film also would become the 13th highest grossing film of 1969. So, Pakula, I'm going to skip ahead, but he, in 73, he made another movie called Love and Pain and the Whole Damn Thing, starring Maggie Smith and Timothy Bottoms Can't from say Last I've ever Picture heard of that Show. One. I know. I haven't, uh, yeah, it's hard to find. Uh, also known as The Widower, but that was Widower, <coughs> Widower. Um, that was released in 1973. I just want to give it a brief mention of that because in between The Sterile Cuckoo and Love and Pain and the Whole Damn Thing, uh, he made a movie called clute which was released in 1971 very odd movie to release in the middle of kind of like two comedies because mm-hmm. clute honestly when you watch it it's a 70s movie but it doesn't feel like it's released in 71 does that make sense it feels like yeah. late 70s uh, like 76 77 because it it for some reason has a very strong grasp of what the 70s style would be like so Mm -hmm. so thomas what is clute about uh clute
1: is about a well the 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 namesake of clute is a private detective played by donald sutherland who has been hired to track down a a friend of his who has gone missing in, in new york city um and the fbi looked into it they determined that he probably ran away or you know decided to start a new life. And so his, the man's wife and his, um, business partner, lawyer.
0: Yeah. Business partner, right? Yeah. Um,
1: hire Clute to track him down because they know there's a lead that there was a call girl in New York that he was seeing and that he had written some letters to. And the call girl, her name is Bree. She's played by Jane Fonda. And she has been receiving like threatening phone calls and is being stalked and all this stuff. And so Clute and Bree end up colliding and kind of clashing heads, and as part of his uh, investigation, but which turns into a relationship between the two of them as as he starts to see that his investigation probably has something to do with the the danger that she's in.
0: It's a very it's a movie that's not dealing with like government secrets like they would do later on with Parallax View or All the President's Men, but this is a very paranoia driven or paranoia fueled film yeah on on a, on kind of a i don't know how to say a more relatable level honestly in a weird way i mean it you know it's it's it, it, hit, it hasn't quite hit like you know
1: the shady government levels yet that he would get to but it, it does have that kind of like corporate upper class yes. white america white american men yeah are like taking, taking it out on the rest of the world, which would kind of turn into yeah. a, a lot of, of his messages. Yeah.
0: And this one deals with kind of like, I mean, it, it, again, it deals with a little bit of like the sexual nature of these upper class white males. Like I think I, in an mm. interview font, Jane final was talking about how, cause she did a lot of research for the role of Brie, like hanging out with, with a lot of these escorts and call girls in New York. And, and she said, she said that one of the one of the girls told her the more money he has, the weirder his uh his taste are in terms of mm-hmm. sex, um, and that comes to play the uh, very much so with some with with the uh some of the characters in this movie. It's not fully it's not fully direct, but very kind of apparent if you look at it. But yeah, it's just the scenes of like in this film. Uh, between her and sutherland of just like the paranoid like the the scene i think of is when sutherland's at her apartment i think when she's still not taking it seriously or whatever and she's mm-hmm. trying and she's taking off her dress and trying to seduce sutherland and he it cuts to a shot of like from um from the the roof like because there's kind of like a a sun like a a a, a wind skylight skylight, thank you a skylight at the top of the the apartment and again this movie is very much about perspective it very much show pakula and dp gordon willis who i will talk about extensively if i want to on this podcast because i think he's so underrated as dp um how in the hell he did not receive an oscar nomination for this film or all the president's men or godfather one and two which he also shot it's kind of insane and really yes it's i just
1: kind of assumed you exactly
0: <laughs> His the only movies he was nominated for i think for like godfather part three and one other film them them i can't remember right now he's I think,
1: only the 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 friggin prince of darkness i know right
0: i because so when, when i was looking into it with these films it was that so but again perspective is they that Willis and pakula shoot a shot f- like from the skylight on the roof and you see sutherland and fonda and just that shot for some reason, clues you into the character that Clute, when he go uh, he he realizes something is wrong, and he takes Fonda to her bedroom, and she's kind of thinking, "Oh, we're I, I I broke him. I broke this small town detective. We're about to have sex," and she's kind of like, uh, like massaging him. Like you see, it's a mirror shot. You see her hands kind of running up and down his body, and he he's just like, "Be quiet. There's someone on the roof." pretend nothing's wrong or whatever and you just see her hands just like stop Mm -hmm. she is paralyzed is what it feels like um and then it's just a kind of a great little like chase not not even chase sequence but like clute begins and like finding it uh, see who was on the roof or whatever but yeah it's just the visual style is so amazing i think the performances are great um again it's so it, it touches on uh the paranoia as i said that will they'll pop up later with the government uh government secrets but yeah it's just and also but the big thing too is just like it establishes again the look of these pakula paranoia films even to like mm-hmm. the production design like her apartment i think is kind of amazing of how it's built out
1: yeah yeah well and i think you you know you were talking about how this feels like it's one of the the later um 1970s films and i think that Scorsese gets a lot of credit as being the person who kind of established that like seedy New York underbelly feel. Um, But Clute is is one of those for sure where it's just like just feel New York just kind of feels gross, which I'm sure is what New York felt like at the time. I think I think probably Midnight Cowboy and Clute together don't get enough credit as being like late 60s already starting to introduce
0: that idea of like what new york had had turned into in like the 60s at that point main Main street doesn't happen until 73 and that's kind of the big like scorsese new york again it's what happens with time and with film is that certain things are carried over uh and certain views and certain films are carried over when some are kind of forgotten so i think it is good to like say movies like clute and parallax view as well um like criterion just released i think release recent blu-rays for both of them actually within the past year parallax mm-hmm. view was just this year in 2021 i think clute was last year um but yeah but jane fonda i want to talk about her real quick jane fonda is amazing in clute it's just yeah. phenomenal um and i don't want to spoil too much with it but there's a scene towards the end when she's listening to audio tape and it's just it's it's i mean it's terrifying this what she's what's like the moment when she's doing it but also it's just it's heartbreaking as well mm-hmm. um and it's just a it's again it, it's, she's such a it's a, such a complex character and i would fonda said that she at one point like a few days before shooting said uh i can't do this you have to fire me and get, take me out of my contract she goes go go hire faye dunaway instead and pakula's like no you're doing this movie <laughs> He's like, you can do this movie. You're just having doubts. You're a little scared right now. It's gonna be okay. You're gonna be fine. Um, and again, this again kind of shows Pakula's uh, talents with actors because he, she, I think they talked about how like they rehearsed for like ten days or so. They rehearsed for a long time. They said, and I've heard a couple of tell us stories of how like they would just sit sometimes for weeks in some of his movies and just go through the script. And comb through the script before actually rehearsing it. um mm. To be a second movie from someone, it's such a bold—at least for the time—least such a bold and incredibly crafted film. Again, like the visual structure, the score is amazing. That hunt—it almost—it feels like a horror film. The score does mm-hmm. with like the kind yeah, of yeah
1: the the like vocals that are yeah.
0: It likes like it's the first thing that popped in the mind uh it's like it sounds like something like rosemary's baby or something like mm-hmm. with the kind of like these these ethereal voices Or it's not children it's just these kind of female voices that are like playing in moments through the movie it creates this just like uh eerie vibe for the entire film
1: yeah, yeah. i mean you know that's this is the first of his paranoia trilogy and, and the paranoia is played like a horror film. I mean, even even just from the, you know, the, the opening credits are played over a tape of Brie. And we, we, at this point, we don't know where this tape has come from, but it immediately puts you, you know, at ill ease because you just realize that this woman is being watched and recorded constantly.
2: He was my old man. We broke up. When?
1: When did you break up?
2: About eight months ago.
3: Would you mind not doing that?
4: Okay.
2: Well, I thought I could trade you for those tapes. Doesn't it get lonely down there in your little room? Or maybe I could bring you some friends. I've got some terrific friends. No, thank you. Well, Men have paid $200 for me, and here you are turning down a freebie. You could get a perfectly good dishwasher for that. What are you doing with my keys?
3: Give me your hand.
0: Cause we talked about neo-noir back in January, and this is an interesting neo-noir of how they tackle the tropes of the genre. Cause she's kind of, it's called clute. It's supposed to be a detective movie, but, but Brie is the main character and Brie is kind of mm-hmm. the, what would be the femme fatale in the traditional noir sense of how she is. She's, she's the, the sed, seductive woman that tips the main character, uh, but she's the main character we're seeing. And so it's just a, a yeah. it's a it's a unique take on the genre a good 70s take on the genre.
1: Yeah, it'd be it'd be so easy to pinpoint her as that, you know, the dame who knows more than she's letting on. Yeah. If if this movie were from Clute's point of view, I mean, because we see it from her point of view, we know that there's not <laughs> everyone thinks. Yeah, that- exactly everyone thinks that there is, but she truly just like does not remember this going down. She
0: doesn't know any of this stuff. She just kind of gets tied up in this, in this matter. And Mm -hmm. she's not, she's like, she plays people. Yes. But that's kind of a part of her job is kind of the thing. She, and this thing is that she, she is a call girl who wants to be an actress or a model. That's the interesting dynamic Mm -hmm. of like what she's doing. And Fonda talked about it. she, She had a conversation with Kula of like, she wanted um brie to be a good actress and you see her giving an audition at one point and she's a good she is a good actress like you could easily see Mm -hmm. her getting a job somewhere uh at either in theater in new york or something and it just doesn't it doesn't land at any point it feels like she's kind of in the in the early days of the 70s i guess the, the looks aren't fully there yet of what the 70s would be um but yeah, I, just, I think it's just, it shows kind of, and I think Fonda, last thing on, probably we move on to the next movie, but like Fonda, what she did, because again, I talked about the production design of her apartment, is that she would actually stay the night in that set. Uh, really? Yeah, she would stay the night in that set for like a few weeks before shooting, because she wanted to build out all the stuff that like that Brie would have, like what would Brie have in her, in her house, in her apartment? What would Brie be reading at night when she's going to bed? And she would do all that to kind of get in the character of, of Brie.
2: What's the difference between going out on a call as a model or as an actress, or as a call girl, you're successful as a call girl. You're not because successful. when you're a call girl, you control it. That's why, because someone wants you, not me. There are some Johns that I have regularly that want me, and that's terrific. But they want a woman, and I know I'm good. And I arrive at their hotel or their apartment. And they're usually nervous, which is fine, because I'm not. I know what I'm doing. And for an hour... For an hour, I'm the best actress in the world. and the best fuck in the world. And... Why'd you say you're the best actress in the world? At that time? Oh, because it's an act. That's what's nice about it. You don't have to feel anything. You don't have to care about anything. You don't have to like anybody. You just, uh, you just lead them by the ring in their nose in the direction that they think they want to go in. And you get a lot of money out of them in as short a period of time as possible. And uh, and you control it and you call the shots. And I always feel just great afterwards.
0: So after after Clute, as I said, he made the love and pain, the whole damn thing, which feels just like an odd kind of left turn. And he comes back to the paranoia genre, I guess you could say, and makes the parallax view. And Thomas, what is the Parallax View about?
1: That is an excellent question. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Parallax View is about a, a journalist played by Warren Beatty mm-hmm. who was at a press conference, basically for this a meet and greet for this, this promising young senator who was uh, gunned down in the Space Needle in seattle yeah and a a few years later a friend of his who is also a journalist comes to him and is like my who was she was also at the assassination and is like my life is in danger everyone who was present at that assassination is dying in mysterious ways and he's like you're crazy it's all circumstance it's all coincidence and then she turns up dead and that launches him into this into this investigation of what happened in this assassination which leads him to this shadowy corporation which may or may not have government ties that seems to make a make a business of of these assassinations which you know at the time this is the early 70s it was coming off of america was coming off a decade of kennedy assass double kennedy assassinations and martin luther king assassinations and all these X, all, all these, these people, conspiracy yeah. theories mm-hmm. with all these you know huge political figures that were taken out and everyone's is just supposed to believe it was all lone gunmen yeah. so this this movie feels like a direct response to everything that had gone on for the last decade
0: yeah it's 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 based on a book uh by lauren singer which followed witnesses of the jfk assassination who were killed uh and the screenplay because kind of, I, I, that was—I don't know when the book came out, but uh, it became 1970. It kind of became more relevant to push it towards, say, a Robert Kennedy thing of mm-hmm. like being ki- being killed, at like a, essentially a fundraiser uh, or a speech. Yeah. And
1: at, at your at your peak, you know, right yeah, before yeah. You know, everyone, they've got this this intro to this senator where the journalist is like, "He's the Great Hope. He's he's coming to save everyone. He's going to win." And he's going to be the next great politician. So yeah, definite shades of, of Bobby Kennedy in there.
0: And, and Beatty is this again, uh, again, going off of the editing, the cut of like, when he's talking to his ex-girlfriend, who's the journalist who thinks, Hey, my life's in danger. People are trying to kill me. They're talking about this. Oh no, you're crazy. And then I think it cuts right to her, like in the morgue, like dead Mm -hmm. in the morgue. And it's such a, uh, Chilling scene, a chilling cut, and Beatty's kind of like, "Why didn't I listen to her? Like, why was I so dumb that I just like, just decided to to write it off?" And yet, it's such, a and again, he he starts going kind of undercover to find out about this corporation. Or I, I think he's just he doesn't know about the corporation. He kind of discovers that along the way, and the name mm-hmm. that comes up is the Parallax Corporation, and it's just. I do think this is the, the weaker of the three of the paranoia trilogy, but how it, it's one that I think has gained a lot of, a lot more maybe relevancy over time. I'm not sure. Like, I, I feel like it's people have become to praise this film more as time has gone on.
1: Yeah. There's, there's, there's sp- spots of greatness in this movie. Yes, there's yes. specifically two sequences that are, Three really, I'd say. There's three incredible sequences in this movie. Um, I did read that they started shooting this without a finished script. which I think. Correct. Comes through, shines through in the film. you're not really sure where it's going, um, and and you, I guess you could write that off and be like, yeah, that's the point of a thriller. It throws you <laughs> off, but it, it feels a little bit more misguided than that. But um, but there are like some really truly amazing sequences. There's a, a as far as like suspense goes there's a scene when Beatty is following a man that he has a package. He's not really sure at this point, like what is in the package, but he, he thinks he sees him get on an airplane. And so he gets onto the airplane after him. And, the and we, as the audience knows that the guy just dropped his bag on the airplane. So we immediately assume bomb, like the guy dropped his bag and, and got off. Yeah, yeah. Beatty didn't see the guy get off. So he gets on the airplane, airplane takes off. And there's this great moment where he like, walks through the cabin to see if he can find this guy and he can't find the guy that he was following and then he realizes there's a US senator in first class and you just see like the realization across his face that like oh my god there's a bomb and then he's trying to figure out how he can you know what's what's the best way to tell people there's a bomb on this, this
0: airplane basically
1: how, yeah what's the best way to tell the crew that there's a bomb on the airplane but I don't have anything to do, to do with it, it. yeah <laughs> But um, it's a really, really fantastic sequence as far as suspense. You know, it's like like Hitchcock always said. You know, the, the, having the bomb under the table is is suspense, and so having the bomb in the luggage stowaway of the airplane is is definitely suspenseful.
0: Yeah, and I think that I think I think probably the latter half of the movie is probably the the stronger half of the movie. Ironically, yeah.
1: I mean, there's there's the the sequence when he goes off. He kind of goes to this small town to investigate a death, and there's like a fist fight in a car chase, yeah. And I was like, "Okay, is that is that what this movie's going for?" And then like it never really comes back, back to, to like those sorts of action sequences. It's it's suspense from then on. But like the first couple of action sequences it gives us are very straightforward kind of action.
0: And then the, and like the final third act is kind of I think to me like the peak, I mean the movie peaks in the right place to me. Is kind of mm-hmm. the thing. It peaks in the third act when I won't say too much about because I want to spoil it for people for You to go see it, uh, it, but with essentially Beatty being involved with something with the Parallax Corporation that feels like it could go bad for Beatty. And I do think this movie is probably the bleakest of the three. Uh, oh, yeah, it's definitely the bleakest of the three movies that pa- Pakula made in this trilogy.
1: I think you're right about it being bleak. I think, kind of, the point of if you take the other two films within. The paranoia trilogy it's like yeah you're right to be paranoid and if you if you like tune in man if you find the truth you can like overcome <laughs> and this one this one isn't necessarily given the same
0: the same message no no it doesn't it's very much yeah it's kind of it's, it's very a different uh very opposite of that but yeah like it has some cool moments like i said i even william daniel daniels mr faney popping up as one of the guys oh
1: yeah yeah it, hey Big William Daniels fan, love yeah. him, and and I, I've I've seen him in some other stuff around this time. But I gotta say the the stubble look was working for him
0: <laughs> when he's on the boat, like the yeah, boat. When he's yeah. on the boat. Oh, he's, he's got his like yachting gr- shirt oh, on, great. got a little
1: bit of stubble, got the Ray Bans. I was like, okay,
0: okay, William Daniels, I see you, Feeny, I see okay, you, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's a guy. Side thing, like he's a guy. Like it's now known of like he was in Barbie's world. But he was a guy who just popped up in so many kind of like, I think, interesting movies around this time. I think he's in the movie. he's in a, He is in a movie called Two for the Road, which I think is one of Audrey Hepburn's best films. Um, Does 1776 count as an interesting movie or, or, or no? I mean, you, I mean, I I think you know this. I love 1776. I don't know why. <laughs> uh, people, I think one year I tried to make friends watch that for Fourth of July. They're like, okay, Brandon, we're not going to go that we're not we're not going to like a three-hour musical about the signing up decoration of decoration dependence and then you know a few years later hamilton happens we're like oh yeah no one's made a yeah, move like, oh, no one's made a Hamilton's musical so groundbreaking no one's made a musical about the american revolution i'm like come on guys <laughs> come on come on I, i've tried to show you this but you guys wouldn't listen because you're like american revolution musicals are boring <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah yeah tell me anyway. tell me where hamilton is missing the song about how great Thomas Jefferson is in bed. Yeah. You know, 1776 has got that, got
0: that, got that. He plays the violin guys. That's what it is. Uh, sidetracked on, uh, 1776, but you know, Daniel's was in a lot of stuff. He's in the graduate. Um, I mean, he was kit night Rider was the big thing. A lot of people love, but he was in a lot of stuff, but he, he kind of plays a very pivotal role in this movie, even though he's not in the movie that much. Um, and I think he is is really really solid in that role.
1: He's like, I think he's like fourth build. yeah, I think so. I think in so credit's behind Hume Cronin
0: because it is it is right after 1776 which I don't know if it was a big hit. it was a big it wasn't a big hit, but it was a big hit on on Broadway. I, I was like I saw the box I was like, yeah it wasn't a big hit. um but it was a big hit on Broadway um and he notoriously on Broadway it basically would not be nominated for a Tony is what it was. It was something kind of crazy where he refused a Tony nomination because let me see this. Cause this is kind of an interesting kind of thing. William Daniels who starred as John Adams in 1776 was ruled ineligible for the best actor nomination because his name was not billed above the title of the show on Broadway. What? He was nominated for best featured actor and refused the nomination. Yeah, he's obviously the main character. <laughs> what? Yeah, he's the main character. of The movie. So, yeah. So anyway, so it's coming off of that in seventeen twenty six and, so, and so he's kind of a big hot treat, and so he's playing a pivotal role in um this movie. I bring that up too because I think pakula was very intelligent when it came to casting.
4: I'm telling you, nobody sent me to look for you. I'm a writer. You stop acting like you're on the New York Times for Christ's sake. You're a third-rate journalist from Aragon or wherever the hell you're from. You've been asking questions about me and things you know nothing about. There were two attempts made at my life before I got out of here. Now, I don't know what you want, but if it's money, I'll give you $10,000 to keep me out of it. You don't mention my name. You don't come looking for me. All I want is to stay out of it. Sorry, Mr. Tucker, you got information I need. Money doesn't mean anything to me. This story's going to mean more to me than $10,000. Fella, you don't know what this story means.
0: But Parallax View, not not well received when it came out. Kind of mixed reviews. Uh, Ebert gave it three out of four stars. Uh, people compared it to another film called Executive Action, which was about the assassination of John F. Kennedy, um, that starred Burt Lancaster and Robert Ryan, and written by... Hmm. Dalton Trumbo in 1973 feels like a little late for kind of all those players in a way when just looking at <laughs> um, at face value. Um do you think Parallax View has aged better over time?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think it's got some, you know, even though I wouldn't call it a an art house film or, you know, it's it's got some really interesting stuff that it does. It's specifically the the kind of like brainwashing yeah, sequence is incredible it's it's really really well done and and willis does some incredible stuff in this movie i don't i don't know are we saving our like willis stuff are we having like a willis section just keep
0: mentioning it i want to i want to hammer that point home
1: (laughs) well i I think because this is something I, i always like i said earlier gordon willis is called the prince of darkness specifically because he never lit people's eyes he lit kind of their their Foreheads kind of block, yeah. and so you have these these Every, scenes everything where you in can't shadow. see anyone's yeah. eyes at all. Yeah, and um, that happens in this movie. But I think, I think if we could go back in time and change his nickname a little bit, I think he should be the Prince of Contrast, which I know doesn't doesn't ring as <laughs> doesn't much. ring as well. <laughs> but but part of the reason I think he's so effective is he knows when to like really light a scene. Yeah, and he knows how to. Con- and, and I'm not just talking about contrast like in a scene like oh it's really dark in the scene but like within a film how to contrast the dark scenes and the light scenes to really hammer that dark home and something we're going to see in this movie and in All the President's Men is how he uses like these fluorescent lights to really it's, it's get and, and I mean this is him and Pakula obviously because they're collaborating on this but like this idea of like fluorescent lights as like being uneasy like there's something
0: ominous about this Yeah. yeah and like
1: sickening about it but um but specifically even like this the climax of the film which without spoiling too much kind of takes place between this like very brightly lit stadium and the very dark like rafters above um and and you know going on to all the president's men he kind of builds that contrast of like between how brightly lit the news office is and so then when you get these scenes where they're meeting with deep throat in the parking lot and you can barely see anything you're like oh these guys are like out of their comfort zone and and it's something that willis does so well and and i don't think a lot of people recognize as much i mean even in like godfather you think of like gordon willis doing the godfather you think of like don Vito's office and how dark it is and you can't make his face out but but that's then contrasted with like the gorgeous like bright tuscan sun when Mm -hmm or sicilian uh, not under the tuscan sun sorry yeah. diane lane is not in this um <laughs> but like the sicilian sun you know when yeah when 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 michael sent away to sicily and it's like bright and the sun bathed and you're like oh okay everything's gonna be better here it's not dark and dingy like new york and then it's not it's it's still yeah you, you know there's still crime and it's still corrupt i um, mean even
0: see a scene i reminded of too and and Going back to Clute, is the scene when we've kind of first introduced to Fonda and Fonda walks in the first hotel room with the guy and mm-hmm. it's and it's brightly lit, but it's all coming from the window. There's no lights in the room. It's all being lit from the window. And they do that a little bit too, even towards the end of Clute. Again, it's when when Fonda's listening to that that audio recording, that tape, is that she it's they put like just a white background behind her that's lighting her and creates this silhouette. He really loves both Bakula and Willis love creating these mm-hmm. very dark silhouettes um, throughout these these films.
1: But yeah, but in the in the climax of Parallax View, it is so disarming yeah. to be go- cutting back and forth through this like really brightly lit stadium, and everybody's all dressed up, and then you, you you're, you're cutting back up top to the rafters, and it's just you can barely see anything.
0: Yeah, but because we'll go, gordon willis again we're, we're saying he's kind of phenomenal in a lot of stuff i think it becomes even more apparent in all the president's men yeah. um so we'll go we'll transition to all the president's men here so thomas what is all the president's men about
1: i'd be i'd be very surprised if anyone listening <laughs> doesn't know what all the president's men is about but if you don't it's about Woodward and bernstein who were washington post reporters who were the ones who kind of blew open that the break-ins at the Watergate Hotel went all the way back up to Nixon and ultimately broke what became known as the Watergate scandal. And um, Deep Throat, who who was at the time even at the making of this movie, an anonymous source that they that gave them a lot of their information.
0: Didn't come out until like, oh, God, 2000s? 2000s. Yeah, let me, I want to see because it was, it was Mark Felt. Uh, mm. 2005.
1: Yeah, I think that was the first time I saw this movie because I yeah. I like knew of Watergate, but I didn't really know about like the Deep Throat part of it. And I remember when that came out, I was like, "What's this all about?" And my mom was like, "Well, strap in, because you got because strap in, to watch this movie." <laughs> and <laughs> she, of course, she was gonna watch it because Robert Redford's in it.
0: Redford, man. But yeah, so Woodward and Bernstein, kind of these these not upstart writers, but they're new to the Washington Post, and they're and they. Mm-hmm come across and new to
1: working with each other they were not a not this like pre-packaged uh plucky investigative team and
0: were they again even after this i'm not i, can't, I don't know fully like if they had like a big career together after this movie or was it just specifically yeah, i don't think
1: they i don't think they really kind I, I think they worked well together but i don't think yeah. they were buddies there's
0: a funny thing uh because william goldman wrote the script for the william goldman phenomenal writer wrote the script for all the presence men And I think he said that uh, Bob Woodward, very helpful in terms of research and stuff for writing the script. Carl Bernstein, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, that makes sense from what I know about Carl Bernstein. Uh, And there's a rumor, I don't know how true it is. That's why he, the movie cuts halfway through the story, basically. It basically cuts the second half of the book out is what Mm -hmm. Goldman decides to do. And there was a rumor that he did that because... Carl Bernstein wasn't that helpful. I think he had more of a major part in the second half than the first half, I think. Uh, don't know how true that part is. Um, but yeah, All the Presence Men is kind of, I think this is Pakula's like, magnum opus. This is his masterpiece. Yeah. Um, I think everything about it, and I think it's the masterpiece of the journalism genre, so I want to spend a good bit of time on this. It it captures, like, I feel like everything we've talked about this month, mm-hmm. All the Presence Men does does about ethics about even to the point of the the comment you made early on like there's always this uh kind of big character actor in the lead role saying about a deadline or something and that's jason robards in this movie yeah
1: yeah you've always got this like mentor tough love mentor editor role yeah. that that was we didn't bring it up about the hume cronin in parallax, parallax
0: View. View, same thing but great opening shot in all the presence men the the typewriter they they put the sound design is typewriter mixed with gunshots is what it was mm-hmm. so when they're hitting it it sounds like gunshots and they're typing out something also one thing I noticed when watching it it says a Robert Redford and Alan Pakula film mm-hmm. but I don't know I know Redford was very like integral in the making of this film I'm not gonna discredit Redford in that way but I found it odd just to see that and then I don't think he was listed as a producer on the movie in the credits, which was odd. But interesting. It's, yeah,
1: because uh, he did. He he basically bought the book and was like, book. I want to be in this movie. Like <laughs> he, was, he was someone who um, hadn't really been. Ta- he was a heartthrob and hadn't really been taken seriously. He was doing like Neil Simon plays. Yeah. And, you know, everyone was like, oh, he's the rom-com guy. And this was his chant. He was like, I'm going to start producing. I want to be. Bob Woodward. I'm gonna make this happen.
0: Yeah, no, and I think it, 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 he's he's great in it, and he and he was very keenly aware that if I'm gonna be in this movie, I have to cast someone who's like of the same like stature. I can't. It has to mm-hmm. be a two hander, and that's how Hoffman came in. Originally, by the way, do you know who it was offered to? Apparently,
1: I feel like I've heard before, but I can't.
0: Let's see. This is '76. Let me see what this person was doing in '76.
1: Bob Hoskins.
0: No, not Bob Hoskins. It was an American guy. We have we've mentioned a movie he was in just recently. Been talking about parallax view, but we're talking about cinematography. Pacino, Pacino, Al Pacino.
1: You know, it's so funny. You go back and when you watch the first Godfather movie, uh-huh. and he's like Michael, be like, "Oh, I'm the war hero, good son, Michael." He's got a lot of Dustin Hoffman energy, <laughs> and it never comes. It's gone. Like as soon as Michael yeah. like breaks bad, he's yeah, he's done with it, a and good then he's fair like. Point and then he becomes Pacino. But when you go back and watch like with that first scene at the wedding and he's like embarrassed of his family and he's kind of timid, Dustin Hoffman could play Michael in that role. Yeah. It's, it's weird. Every time I watch it, I'm like, that's, that's like Al Pacino playing Dustin Hoffman right there.
0: But yes, yeah, so this movie, it's just, again, Pacula having just a eye for detail. So The big thing was they could not work at, um, I cannot shoot at the Washington Post. They were denied access to Washington Post. So Pakula and his team, production designer, art directors George Jenkins and George Gaines, two Georges, they designed the Washington Post at a studio in Los Angeles. Like to scale. Mm-hmm. And it's insane when you look at that movie because it's it looks like they're in a real newsroom. I know it's yeah. like it's like I know it's movie magic, guys, but it's still just sometimes so like I'm so awestruck to see the links they would go to create such accuracy and authenticity authenticity with that set.
1: And let's let's bring it back to our our Gordon Willis yeah uh, praise uh, segment. But um, yeah, and they they light it with for they put fluorescent lights into the ceiling like you would have in a news office, and they light it with that. Any other DP would be like, no, absolutely not. I'm not having these like fluorescent lights that I can't like shape and mold. Um, there's no way we're working with that, but they do
0: the cinematography discussion. Cause I, I know cinematographers who don't want their image to quote unquote look ugly um, mm-hmm. because they, they want to, like, they want to put on their reel. They want to make it look good, but it depends on like what, what's the story called for? Cause like this calls for that. So would I call the stuff in the, them in the office of Washington Post ugly? No, because it makes perfect sense for the story. So mm-hmm. if it makes sense for the story, it's not it's again, it's the kind of the the aesthetic versus the kind of story creative part of it. And some people don't fully realize that, like, it's what the story calls for. Um, yeah. And he does. it. I mean, again, one of my favorite scenes in the movie, and this is also Redford, too. It's that split diopter shot uh, when Redford's calling, well, he's on the phone with all the different people that he's trying to talk to. And mm-hmm. it's a slow zoom in. It's a six minute zoom in shot of Redford's face as he's mm-hmm. talking. And Redford messes up in the take, which I find funny, is that he forgets who he's talking to and calls the character by the wrong name and then is like, oh, wait. That's not He he switches it And realizes he messed up But such a human moment That That Bob, Woodward would get confused In that moment of, of of like talking to Four different people Like he's been talking to Yeah And Pakula smartly Keeps it in there Mr. Dalbert
4: Yes uh, I'm sorry I hung up before I wasn't sure You were a Washington Post reporter I believe
3: we were talking About a $25,000 check
4: well, uh, Obviously uh, this This is difficult for me Uh, I'm I'm caught in the middle of something, and uh, I I don't know what.
3: What do you think it could be? I I deal with a lot of important people. People who work for the committee? Hello? For for the committee. The committee to re-elect the president? Yes.
4: You see, I raise that money in in cash, and uh, I I have a winter home in Florida. Is that Miami? About Boca Raton, and, and, and uh, I didn't want to carry all that cash around. Now, you can understand
3: that. Oh, of course I can.
4: So I had it exchanged for the cashier's check.
3: And how do you think it got into Barker's account?
4: Uh, I, I know I shouldn't be telling you this. Uh, I gave it to Mr. Stanz. I beg your pardon? I gave it to Stans.
3: Maurice Stans? The head of finance for Nixon?
4: Yes, in, in Washington. Now, what he did with it, I, I really do not know.
3: I see. Uh, were there any other checks, sir, that but you that, might be aware that, of? They that, could have that's,
4: come. That's all I, I had to say.
3: Mr. McGregor. Mr. Dahlberg. I'm sorry.
0: Thank you very much. They bought 200 desks that were about $500 a piece. They were purchased from the same firm that sold desks, to The Washington Post. They, painted the color, they they painted those desks the same color uh, as the ones in the, in, or they painted yeah, the desks were painted the same color as those in the newsroom. Uh, the production was supplied with a brick from the main lobby of the post so that it would be duplicated in the fiberglass of the set. Wow. Uh, set designers took measurements in the newspaper offices, so it was and they, Pakula even had trash sent in from the newsroom at the post to burbank studios where it was shot at to be put on set in the trash cans <laughs> of the post it's insane um but yeah and and so you have that so you have the production that's great you have the cinematography it's great um the cast we've briefly talked about we'll talk about real quick the cast is amazing like yep. top to bottom you get a you get a uh I think, I think Jason Robards gets the and, but Martin Balsam gets the with special appearance by Martin Balsam <laughs> mm-hmm. in the role and Ma- Martin Balsam and Jack Warden were in another kind of ethical dilemma movie. They were in together in, in the, in the fifties and that was 12 angry men. Um, and then real quick, cause he just recently passed away, but Hal Holbrook is deep throat mm-hmm. is amazing.
1: Yeah. Taking a role where it's like, yeah, we're never going to see your face. We're going to see, like, shadows of you.
0: Apparently, Redford told him, um, Hol- Hol- Holbrook-, Holbrook didn't want to do it. And Redford told him, trust me, you will be the most memorable character in the movie.
1: Yeah, because he was playing someone that, like, you know, it's it's looking back now. We're like, oh, yeah, that's that's who Deep Throat was. But, like, at the time, it was this person of legend that, like, no one had any idea who he was. So like to play him was such a huge deal. And then the, you know, the way that they shot him is obviously a great way to be like, Hey, we're not going to, sh- we're not going to like show you our interpretation of what he looks like. Cause we're keeping our source uh yeah. anonymous. So the way that they do it is, is wonderful, but there, there was already such a like real life mystery surrounding it that, that you already knew yeah. whoever was going to take that role. It was going to be huge.
0: Yeah, exactly. And he, and again, he has some of the great lines to follow the money line. Mm-hmm. which was not in the book apparently was added to the script and it's just a great like and now
1: colman, colman can't help himself when I mean, he's got a good line he's like i gotta put this <laughs> i gotta put
0: this in, this in there but it's, it's the idea like follow the money became like there's a few things in some of the Pekula films like it becomes part of the cultural like uh lexicon mm-hmm. uh and follow the money kind of became like when it comes to conspiracies it's like follow where like follow the information follow the money see where it goes cause it's gonna lead you to the top
3: the story is dry All we've got are are pieces. We can't seem to figure out what the puzzle is supposed to look like. John Mitchell resigns as the head of CREEP and says that he wants to spend more time with his family. It sounds like bullshit. We don't exactly believe that. Oh, but it's touching.
4: Forget the myths that the media's created about the White House. The truth is, these are not very bright guys, and things got out of hand come in from the cold. Supposedly he's got a lawyer with $25,000 in a brown paper bag. follow the money. What do you mean? Where? Oh, I can't tell you that. But you could tell me that. No, I have to do this my way. You tell me what you know and I'll confirm. I'll keep you in the right direction if I can, but that's all.
1: just follow the money I right, speaking of of pakula making things become part of the lexicon and this this is a crazy question there's gonna be some historians any historians that listen to the podcast and be mad at me right now but like do you think watergate would have the prominence that it does if this movie hadn't been made
0: uh my first inclination is to say no it would not be as big
1: like, would we be at this point where, like, any political scandal that happens is labeled whatever gate, be- <laughs> you know?
0: Yeah. Well, I, I, here's here's why I think it would not have been as big. Because Watergate hap- the book comes out in 74. Watergate 72. So it's within four years. Like comparison. They didn't make one about the Pentagon Papers until when? until the post with mail street mm-hmm. tom hanks and and steven spielberg uh the Penguin papers had just happened
1: <laughs> yeah
0: the Penguin papers sadly are not as well known as watergate
1: yeah that's true so yeah.
0: that that's kind of the comparison is that there was a book that came yeah, these with days this
1: everybody's like oh adam mckay he's uh, no no offense <laughs> i was like oh it's so groundbreaking <laughs> But uh, I mean, this yeah, this was like two years after it happened. You get two of the biggest stars in Hollywood. That's the thing. And throw them in this movie about what just went down at the
0: White House. And and, and the thing is, it's good. At the end of the day, it's a it's a great yeah. film. Wow, are you saying Adam McKay's movies are good? No, that, no, I'm not that saying that. that Jesus. On? no, 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 <laughs> no. God,
1: I actually dude. liked Vice a lot more than people.
0: I mean, yeah, you, you know, I'll th- I like I'll throw
1: Adam. that out there. If you're listening, Adam McKay, I really enjoyed Vice. I thought it was a lot of fun.
0: <laughs> so yeah, I like Adam McKay. <laughs> Uh, we just lost Adam McKay as a listener there, Thomas. Uh, no, I, I, I just what I mean is that, like, you know, when you put stars together, it doesn't always work. Mm-hmm. And this is me, we're like, we're putting two of the biggest stars in America in a movie together. It's a two hander. You have a guy who's making, you have William Goldman who is one of the best, who's coming off of Butch Cassie and the Sundance Kid, like about six, six, seven years later, you have a great writer, you have a great DP, like you have Pakula, who's who's kind of this hot paranoia-driven like director of what he's doing with, and you have great source material. And uh, things can go wrong. And also because it's so politically driven, as you know, nowadays, is like some political driven movies become... I, is it here, here's the question off this is this this movie deals with politics a lot but do you think it's one-sided in a particular way
1: well, i mean i think i think watergate was one of those where it was hard to you know it was hard to not be correct i, correct. I, don't, I don't know it's and, and it was a something that i don't think we'll ever recapture as a country when everyone could just stop and say like oh yeah this dude messed up
0: yeah yeah yeah
1: um but yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely a, it, it definitely turns it in. And it, it's something that, that Aaron Sorkin gets a lot of flack for these days. And, and I think there's a reason that Sorkin cites William Goldman as his favorite writer. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's this, it purports, it's, you know, it, it, it says like, this is history, but the whole time you're watching it, you're like, yeah, we know who you're rooting for. Like, this is not, yeah, This is not a, uh. I neutral telling of the story.
0: I think, I, I think too. Well, I think the characters of Woodward and Bernstein, I guess there's a, uh, what I'm trying to figure out is that if you look at journalism nowadays, I'm not saying it is this way. In some cases it is this way, but many people believe that journalism is always politically motivated. Of the, what party you were on. I do not get the sense in the characters that Bernstein and Woodward are like, <laughs> we're 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 for lack of better phrases we're liberal democrats who want to take down nixon they believe this is a story that needs to be told uh to the american public and the american public need to be aware of what has happened because the law has been broken and there needs and they need to be aware that that their money or people's money had gone to essentially uh wiretap and listen in on the democratic party is what it was. Mm-hmm. So I, you know what I mean? Like you're not seeing, I mean, it's, it's political. Yes. It is one side because it's telling a story against the Republican party, but it it's telling the facts. If that makes sense. It's not trying to yeah. add them to, it. I read, I don't know how true this is, but I read that Goldman, the basically they said in this, in this movie, they pretty much want to make sure it was fully, I mean, a lot of stuff they want to make sure was fully authentic and accurate of what was, what happened and what was said. I the mm-hmm. one that's kind of one of the things that i know that was like a fabrication was dustin hoffman as bernstein going down to florida and like going in to see ned Beatty, who made ned Beatty, who pops up in like one scene uh mm-hmm. in there um that was apparently because that side thing i didn't say is that carl bernstein no one liked goldman's first draft of the script so they asked for notes so redford made notes woodward made notes Carl Bernstein and his wife at the time, Nora Ephron, went off mm-hmm. and wrote a full script for all the presidents' men. And Goldman was furious, <laughs> apparently, <laughs> that Redford would even c- contemplate it. But there was one scene, and that was the scene with Ned Beatty, or the the uh Carl Bernstein calling up the secretary to get her out of the room so he can go and see Ned Beatty. Uh, one person I want to bring up here. We talked about Jason Robarts. Jason Robards is amazing in this. He gets nominated for, he wins an Oscar for it. I think he's a a guy who's an underrated character actor of this era nowadays when talking about, we kind of forget how talented he was, but someone else I want to bring up that has like two scenes and that's Jane Alexander who plays Judy Hoback Miller, who's Mm -hmm. kind of their big person that gives them information on Watergate at one point. And it's it's the scene of Bernstein talking with her in her living room. Jane Alexander, within a short amount of time, within nine years, or sorry, within say she had four Oscar nominations in a thirteen-year span, but didn't win one. And she was nominated for this film for Best Supporting Actress in this in this movie. Um, so just someone who like was very well acclaimed in her time that I feel like has been somewhat forgotten. Yeah. Um, I think she's still working a little bit. Not much. She's older. She's in her eighties now. Uh, she was last in. Oh, she was last in Tales from the Loop on Amazon, I believe. Oh, okay. She had three episodes. Um, but she's, I think, amazing in the scene when they have, when Bernstein is interviewing her in her apart, in her house, and she's worried about what's going to happen. Because that's what I love about this movie is it, it really captures... These journalists hitting so many dead ends the mm-hmm. entire time. It's the yeah. going from house to house, no one wants to talk to them. And I feel like in a modern day movie, it's the we get a two-minute montage, and then all of a sudden someone opens up and the case is broken open. This spends a lot of time with them literally just knocking on doors, going to and from houses back and forth from houses to like okay when you said this did you mean this or whatever and them trying to find little kind of loopholes to get information out of people which i find so fascinating oh if we say this
3: so p is definitely porter p could be porter p is porter l is Liddy. that leaves that all that leaves is m m could be mccord that's out it could be Mardian. it could be magruder i think it's magruder I think it's Magruder, too. Why do you think it's Because he was second-in-command under Mitchell. Why do you think it's Magruder? I think it's Magruder because at one time he was a temporary head of the committee to reelect elect before Mitchell. I don't want a cookie. We've got to get that bookkeeper to say it was Magruder. Never get her to say anything but am. We've got to go back there and try to get her to say it. If we can make names of the initials, then we'll know the people at who paid off the burglars. We'll at least know who got the money. The indictments that came down from the grand jury today, Stop. With the five burglars, Hunt and Liddy. Carl, we have got to go back there and get that bookkeeper to say who the names are and not initials. Well, she ain't going to give it to you, because I was with the woman for six hours. You're going to try. Well, then you're going to have to trick her, threaten her. She's not going to do it. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You know what you could do? What? uh, Listen, we go back there. Yeah. And you ask her who P is. And then I say, no, 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 no. We know P is Porter. I just bury it. Okay, now wait wait a minute. I say to her, who is P? Right. And then you say to me. I say, no, we know P is Porter. You mean you try to fake her out? Right. And what if she denies it? We're screwed. So? But if she doesn't, we know we've got it. We know P is Porter. Try it.
0: All Presence Men, big hit. Uh, uh, Received many Oscar nominations. Um, But but not one for Gordon Willis. Um, Eight. Eight Oscar nominations. One. Four best supporting actor, Jason Robards, best sound design, because the sound design is amazing. Uh William Goldman wins for best adapted screenplay and then best art direction by George Jenkins and George Gaines, which well deserved for that Washington Post. Okay. So I'll ask this for this paranoia trilogy. What's kind of the overarching, like I mean, what what are the themes that run throughout the whole trilogy? What are some similarities between all three movies?
1: um i mean conspiracies of course
0: conspiracies yeah big thing
1: but but this idea of like trusting your gut for all these people it has to do with and and i you have to imagine it was speaking to all these people who are feeling so uneasy in this time period but for all of these characters they kind of start out with just a general feeling of disbelief unease and it's all about like following the rabbit hole um sometimes it's sometimes it works out sometimes it doesn't you know it's it's interesting i think that's that's one thing without spoiling parallax view that's that's one thing i'll say is i think this would be a very different and even if it is the weakest of the three films i think this would be a very different trilogy if all these movies were saying chase the conspiracy you're going to change the world if you do yeah um they don't and so that's that's a very interesting message although this is that's kind of the message that it ends on with all the president's men, which, and which is kind of, especially leads, leans it some, some credence because it was true. You know, that's how yeah. it went down. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, like, like these, you know, fight the power, question the power, question what you're being told. Um, All that kind of spills through and, and, and clue has hints of it. It's not as like we said, it's not, the government that's an issue here but it is kind of corporate shadiness that's involved and and so those themes do kind of continue throughout all three and it, it's also got you know there's some there's something about with all of them i mean with brie and with some of the people he talks to in parallax View, and especially like you said this montage of like all these people they talk to in watergate there's yeah. something about like don't write out the little guy when it comes to like your search for these answers yeah um you know you're everyone's looking at the top but maybe you should look at the people that have been kind of discarded by the top when you're on your journey there
0: side thing on that that goes later for the pelican brief actually denzel washington's big source in that movie is like a janitor at the white house Mm that's what it was and And a college student and a college student and the janitor at the White House is like, he, he'll meet up at a diner and he'll tell him information of what's happening at the White House. And the White House is like, how is he getting all this information? And it's it's the guy that's the janitor that, that overhears everything mm-hmm. that they're not thinking about. They don't, they're thinking about who who's the head of the CIA or who's my who's my staffer that's leaking this. But it's just it's the janitor. Um, but yeah, it's the little guy. Is kind of, that's a good that's a good point. So, All the President's Men comes out, big hit, as we said multiple oscars. So, pakula's next film is met with a lot of hype. And he makes a film called Comes a Horseman, which is kind of a revisionist western. It's not typical American western. It takes place after the after World War II. It's about uh Jane Fonda plays uh Ella Ella Connors who basically owns this land, this ranching land in Texas. And she is taking over her father's land after he's passed away a a while ago. And this other man, uh, Jacob Ewing played by Jason Robards is wanting to buy the land from her, but she won't sell. Um, She meets up with uh, James Kahn, who is a former World War II soldier who had come from home from the war, actually bought a little patch of land from Fonda before him and his best friend played by Mark Harmon young Mark Harmon are ranching the land and Mark Harmon gets killed by one of Robards's men because they don't want him on the land. So that Robards can kind of keep this land for himself for raising cattle. So it kind of becomes this, uh, James Kahn ends up partnering with Fonda and they end up working the land together and try to save the, the ranch from like closing out and having to sell to Robards. Um, by bringing up short shot by Gordon Willis, beautiful looking film. I think it's somewhat, flawed because it's such a i would i almost like want to revisit it after watching it now that i know kind of the the vibe of it because it it doesn't feel like the 1940s it feels like the 1970s because pakula mm-hmm. and willis i think have such a distinct 1970s looking vibe so i was like i was at first thinking oh they're just uh james Conn's coming back from like vietnam or something but it comes to find out he's coming back from world war ii i was like oh Khan and Fonda kind of have too much of a modern look for like World War II. Maybe it's just I'll rewatch it, but it, it is a Gordon Willis's cinematography. Again, as I said, beautiful, beautiful silhouettes. He really uses the landscape incredibly well. But the big thing I want to bring up, as I said before, about Pakula's casting is Richard Farnsworth. Richard Farnsworth was an actor who had been a stuntman for decades had worked on like gone with the wind uh red river um the ten commandments spartacus like all these kind of like st- stuntman roles um and he actually worked on he was a stuntman on the stalking moon which was produced by alan pakula it was the last film that he did for robert mulligan and so i wonder if he was aware of him from then and then when it came to Comes a Horseman, he cast him. This was as like Farnsworth's first really acting role, it kind of feels like. Hmm. And he gets nominated for an Oscar. And he was, uh, at this point, he was 58 years old. And it was kind of his Oscar debut or his, his acting debut. And he's phenomenal in it. And he would later become famous doing the straight story directed by David Lynch, which would also re- help him receive an Oscar nomination for best a- for Best Actor, but he's—it's this—he's basically a, a ranch hand for Fonda, and it's kind of her like father figure, is what it is. But he's—he's he's so warm and so just sweet, and it's just an amazing performance, especially from a essentially a first-time actor stuntman turned actor.
5: Ella. better than anyone I won't allow no lion under my roof except some of my tall tails
4: but I know and you know my roping and riding days is over. Up dog, baby, sister.
2: One that bites the hardest.
5: No matter what you think, your dad would be damn proud of you
0: then he finished all the seventies with a movie called starting over starring Burt Reynolds, Jill Clayburgh, and Candace Bergen. And I, this was a fun one for me because I was not expecting much of this movie, but it's about, uh, Burt Reynolds is, uh, he's married to Candace Bergen and the beginning of the movie, he basically, she breaks up, they break up because she cheated on him with his, with his boss. So he moves out of New York, goes to Boston to live with his, live near his brother played by Charles Durning and he ends up meeting Jill Claiborne on a blind date that his brother sets up with, with, them, with, with him. And she's like a, 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 a an elementary school teacher and they end up starting to date. Candace Bergen plays his singer songwriter wife who says, I want to divorce you so I can make it big as a musician. And then she makes it big as a singer. And he's just like, so he has moments where he's like going through places and her song is playing Mm-hmm. and he's just like oh god it's this and it's a different role for burt reynolds because reynolds is the ladies man in this period of time he's the star mm-hmm. and what i find so funny is that anytime he kind of makes a move that is questionable where he like tries to kiss a woman or tries to make a move on her she's like get the hell away from me and in most <laughs> of these movies it would be like oh yeah you're burt reynolds we're gonna we're gonna like make out and have sex right now and it's like no no get away from me you like 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 disgusting man or whatever. And there's a moment. I don't want to ruin it uh, for some people, but there's a moment when Candice Bergen comes back to Burt Reynolds and, and she um is trying to get him back. And she's, he, she takes him up to his hotel room. They're having a drink and out of nowhere, she turns on like a, a record player she turns on something and a song starts playing and she starts singing to him in the hotel room and she's not good. And it, she does the, she's like, I wrote this for you. And she sings it and it goes to the entire song. And Burt Reynolds, just like, what in the hell are you doing? Like his look, <laughs> she looks, he she looks insane because she's singing the song about how, like when, like when we were together, about when you would touch me and this, and he's just like, you are crazy. But, To go off that, Jill Clayburgh and Candace Bergen both got Oscar nominations for starting over. It's a film we're checking out currently Hmm. streaming on Paramount Network. Uh, Again, an underrated Burt Reynolds performance. Very different for him. him. Him is kind of a romantic comedy lead where he's kind of out of sorts in some way.
5: I found myself, and now I'm better than ever, I'll be better than ever, He wrote this song for us, we'll never say goodbye again, throw off your shoes and come on in, say hello!
0: is kind of a rough decade for pakula he does a couple movies called rollover dream lover orphans one movie called see you in the morning with jeff bridges that pakula has said is his most autobiographical film because it's kind of about him marrying his 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 last wife um and 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 a kind of a being with her two, a, a inheriting uh two kids essentially with her um but the big movie of the 80s for him is sophie's choice so thomas what is sophie's choice about I love Sophie's
1: Choice. I'll just open with that. <laughs> okay. Um, so it's about a, a young man who who from the South who wants to move up to New York and be is New it New York? York? Yeah, it's New, New York, York right? New York. Yeah, he wants to move up to New York and be a writer. Um, his his name is Stingo. Yeah, which that's fantastic. Um, <laughs> uh, played by Peter McNichol, and he ends up kind of sharing room in a boarding house next to this couple um played by kevin klein and meryl streep meryl streep's playing a woman named sophie who's a polish immigrant and they become very he and the couple become like inseparable and through his time with them he realizes that um kevin klein's character is abusive and that, that that sophie is in this abusive relationship with him but he also finds out She's a Holocaust survivor and kind of gets from her in pieces her experience of uh, being in a concentration camp, mm-hmm. which is, I think, as I've, I've told you this before, this is the, this is this movie that I think a lot of people falsely remember as a Holocaust movie.
0: It's not really. It, it's, it, it, there's like not. scenes. <laughs> there's scenes of it, but it's not like full on Holocaust movie.
1: This was your first time watching. Yes.
0: First time watching it, it's an interesting watch. I think the performances, specifically from uh, Meryl Streep and Kevin Kline, Kevin Kline, feature film debut, and just mm-hmm. come it, fully formed. Like is yeah. that, like, Kevin Kline is fully incredible formed, performance. Fully formed, um, and and Meryl Streep's amazing. Like, yeah. Pier, it's it's so so. Pierre McNichol, I think, is fine in the role because he, he i think he's done he did mostly theater afterwards it's like it feels like this is supposed to be his big break and then it's like everyone's talking about Meryl Streep and Kevin Kline and so he kind of doesn't do that much but i
1: fantastic like, fantastic and veep gotta throw that out there no he's great i know he's, that's many years later
0: he's me he's great in veep. <laughs> he's great in Ams family values you know he's great in ghostbusters 2 uh no um but uh but i think it's because Kevin Klein and Streep had f- just such phenomenal chemistry together that Peter McNichol just, like, sadly can't compete. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. it's supposed to... It kind of works early on because it feels like this... I was oddly reminded of To Kill a Mockingbird in the first, like, 15, 20 minutes of this movie because huh. it's narr- It's being narrated by Stingo at an at a older age looking mm-hmm. back on his time in Brooklyn and hanging out with these two kind of uh, adventurous and kind of uh, eccentric characters, which feels almost like Jean Louise talking about when she was growing up with Scout and hanging with Dill and Jim. And so it kind of has this like nostalgia lens on it when they're like, they're sitting on like on the on the ba- or the the roof of the the house in Brooklyn and and talking about the times together and so it has a little bit of that vibe to it to me it's not the full movie it's not that way at all but it's just in this mm-hmm. kind of specific section of when they become friends it very much reminds me of like jim scout and dill hanging out in the neighborhood becoming friends over the su- over the summer Hmm. And as I said, Meryl Streep's amazing. He, he shoots the scene of when she's kind of telling Stingo of like what when they're when they're in the apartment and he does this close up of Meryl Streep's face and she's looking directly at camera where are the people she's telling. It's such a beautiful moment. And he brings it back at the end of the film as kind of like the final image through like uh, over like overlaid with a white kind of screen. I think it's just beautiful like it's it's the that's the the image you see in all the streep like tributes they ever do of her mm-hmm. is that image. i think this
1: was I, I streep was was a very well-respected performer before this but i think this was the movie where she became like the transformative actor because i know they they were both mo- usually were, they were going to cast like a polish actress and streep was like i can do this i can learn this accent and i've heard from anytime you watch these like interviews with like accents coaches, they're like, yeah, Meryl Streep doing the Polish accent and Sophie's choice is one of the best, um, like Americans able to take on an accent. Like she has it perfectly. She changed the way that she like held her mouth to like incorporate the way that Polish people speak. It's, it's incredible.
5: I suddenly remember that my father is waiting for that speech and I hurry home to finish the typing. But, um, In my rushing and uh, my haste to finish that, I make so many mistakes in the sentences and... I run with it to university and my father has no time to check that before speaking. And he get up in front of all those people and he read this speech and make those mistakes and I see him getting so angry. And when it was over, he came up to me, I was with my husband, of course, and in front of him and all his colleagues, he said, "Zosha, your intelligence is pulp, pulp. I did not have any courage to say yes. But what about the Jews? I'm, the Jewish people. But after that, he didn't trust me anyway, and neither did my husband.
0: Like I said, I think the movie is good. I think she is phenomenal.
1: Yeah, and and, and Kevin Klein. Kevin, I mean,
0: you know, you, yeah, you know how I feel about Kevin Klein. I love Kevin Klein
1: but what what i what i think is really special about this movie is i i think it's there's a lot of movies that try to capture abusive relationships that yeah, don't yeah. capture it in the way that you watch it and you go this is awful why would anyone put up with this and there's very few movies and i can i, I can think of several examples but there's very few movies that capture the fact that like some of these people that are, that are abusive have these moments of like pure charisma where you're just like this person is amazing and you can see why and that's why that's why I love Kevin Klein's performance in this and he and Meryl Streeps their their relationship in this is it truly captures there's times when Stingo is hanging out with them where you're just like this feels magical yeah. like yeah like when they go to toast his his book on the um on
0: Brooklyn Bridge on yeah, the yeah. bridge yeah
1: and you're just like this feels this feels amazing yeah I would I would love to have friends like this but you know that he's not a good friend
0: no because it's uh he he uh Pakul and then they introduce klein at like a low point when he's mm-hmm. literally yelling at streep uh at sophie and like she's trying to pull him back in the the house and she's like right, he's like going downstairs and yelling at her and then he sees stingo and just like like flat out insults him like mm-hmm. doesn't know him he goes oh you are you know, a new southern rider, like in, a, in like a, just a shitty southern accent, making fun of him and calling and essentially calling him racist and all these things in this like moment. And you're like, oh, God, this guy's going to be terrible. And the next time you see him, it's like, oh, I'm sorry for last night. Like, I'm sorry that I did this. Like it was I was out of sorts. So I was a little drunk. And it's like they both fall for him like that. And so mm-hmm. that's always in the back of your head. But Kevin Klein, as the movie continues, wins you over. And then right when you feel safe, it's twisted again and Mm -hmm. something else happens. Um, And it's done, it's done, it's, it's fantastic.
4: This bridge, which so many great American writers have stood and reached out for words to give America its voice. Looking toward the land that gave us Whitman from its eastern edge dreamt his country's future and gave it words on the span which thomas Wolfe and hart crane wrote we welcomed stingo into that pantheon of the gods
0: that's his 80s 90s becomes more 90s thrillers He does, uh, presumed innocent with Harrison Ford, which has its followers. It's a legal thriller. Uh, Harrison Ford, it's kind of the fugitive, like he's, he's accused of killing his, I think it's his, someone he's had an affair on is what it is, uh, that he works with. And it's, it's very much, it's not a John Grisham movie, but it's coming out around the time of the John Grisham films. So it has a little bit of that vibe. Um, I think it tries to pull one too many twists, but that's just me. It has his followers. <laughs> uh, it has consenting adults with, um, Kevin Klein as well. Uh, his last film is the devil's own with Brad Pitt and Harrison Ford, not well received. I think it was one of the few films that he was just the director for and didn't write or produce. Um, but the last one I want to talk about real quick, because it deals with journalism movie journalism topic is the Pelican brief. So Thomas was, what what's the Pelican brief about,
1: uh, the Pelican Brief is about, uh, Supreme Court justices who start, who are being assassinated and, um, Julia Roberts is a, um, law student at Tulane and she develops this kind of like theory that these, this is all based around this, uh, oil, right. Oil development,
0: oil development in like Louisiana, I think, or some
1: place, Louisiana. How could that ever turn out bad?
0: yeah i know right because it's, it's about like i mean it's it can it kind of revealed, but like it's like something to do with pelicans of like it they, because the pelicans were a certain type of species they yeah, could
1: endangered pelicans
0: endangered pelicans and and uh and it was environmental reasons um yeah so
1: she she kind of writes this paper more as like a like a like a think piece theory and and gives it to her law professor slash boyfriend played by sam Shepard, who sees some promise in it and passes it along to a friend in the government yeah. Next thing John you know, Hurt,
0: John Hurt, who's a great, great character actor.
1: Yeah. Uh, next thing you know, I mean, spoiler, but this is the first twenty minutes of the movie. Yeah. Um, uh, he's killed in a bomb that is obviously meant for the two of them. Yeah. And, Car- and yeah. she's like, oh, maybe, maybe the, the the Pelican Brief was onto something. Uh, and then you've also got Denzel as a reporter who is also kind of reporting on these killings, and the two of them end up intersecting and and cooperating to to figure out if if the pelican brief is if there is truth to it which obviously there's there's got to be by the fact that someone's trying to kill joey
0: roberts yeah so here's the thing about the pelican brief (laughs) i've been waiting just to talk about this so the pelican brief uh, it's one that i've never really enjoyed (laughs) personally out of the john grisham movies it's one that i think is always forgettable this it was better for me this in this watch but I, there's a one major flaw and it's important to look at compared to all the president's men and all the president's men. We are unaware. And this is, or at least in terms of the movie terms, we are unaware of who the, like the culprits are and Watergate. We are unaware and the characters are unaware. So we're following them. Find out what is so mm-hmm. odd in this movie is that for the first hour and 15 minutes, all of the characters are aware of who the suspect is, but the audience is not. Mm. We are left in the dark. So I'm like, yeah, why? we don't really
1: know what the Pelican brief is. So
0: I'm like, for the first hour and 15 minutes, I'm like, why do I care?
1: <laughs> yeah. Also, why do we name the movie after this? <laughs>
0: yes. It's like, and so they try to use Denzel as the, as the audience surrogate where we're the ones following. We're following along with him for him to find out. The issue is, mm. is that he is not really there in that first hour and 15 minutes he's there he's, he's back and forth he hasn't meet julia roberts until like hour and 15 so we're following him trying to find stuff out but he's kind of in his own separate storyline and then they kind of mm-hmm. converge later on but there's literal scenes where they will have characters read the brief and be like are you sure it could be this person? I think it could be. Mm-hmm. I think it could be. And I'm like, like, Oh yeah, I who? think it's interesting. Like, I think what
1: you've got here is interesting. Yeah. And, like, and we're like, yeah, we, what is it?
0: Who is it? Why do we care? <laughs> and, and and it's not like, and there's something like, Oh, hide the information for the audience for later. But there's a thing where you can't have your characters too far ahead of the audience. And in this mm-hmm. movie, the characters are so far ahead. And then at the hour and 15 minute mark, we have this huge exposition dump where, Drew Roberts and Denzel Washington finally meet and she's telling him in, his ho- in her hotel room what happened, but you don't actually see the conversation play out. It's Denzel Washington listening to the tape recordings of the previous conversation Drew Roberts and him just had. So you can't really see mm-hmm. them connect and have chemistry together. And it's just like everything else about this movie really works except that issue. And if you fix that issue, I feel like it'd be a better film. Yeah, it's a lot of shock and surprise. It's not mystery.
1: It's a lot of bombs exploding without knowing that, you know, that they're under there. Exactly. I will say highlight of the film we get stanley tucci as a mysterious assassin
0: he's great he it, it's, it's odd it's odd tucci role you kind of forget that tucci's like was doing a lot of weird roles when he's starting out or he's in the 90s yeah
1: like you think he's like oh he's stanley tucci i like him in everything and they're like yeah. okay well let's make him a cold-blooded killer yeah see if you still like him
0: yeah exactly uh you got john lithgow popping up as the editor again halfway into the movie as like hey we need a deadline here. Denzel. Uh, a lot again it's just kind of a lot of easy jump scares but the cinematography is great i think it, it i don't know if it was shot by gordon willis i don't think it was but willis did come back and shoot um the devil's own which is his final film that's kind of the the pakula filmography the, his last film as i said was in 1997 with the devil's own uh pakula tragically passed away at the age of 70 he died in a freak car accident um he was driving on the long island expressway and he was killed when a metal pipe smashed the windshield of his of his station wagon struck him in the head causing him to swerve off the road hitting a fence and he was pretty much pronounced dead Within the hour uh I say he was seventy years old and it came as kind of quite a shock uh to people and he kind of let it's it's kind of the thing where he he you wonder I mean, he's he was getting older anyway but you could have wondered what kind of movies he could have made at least one more time or whatever um mm-hmm. and there was massive praise went once he passed away from his from actors like Meryl Streep and Harrison Ford uh and several other jane fonda specifically so many people talked about him and since then he's kind of like it his 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 legacy is kind of forgotten it feels like sometimes um and for a guy who i do think he's made he made some less than stellar films i think for make if you can make two great films i think are one masterpiece in all the presents men and i think a a fantastic film include and then a couple of really solid films like the parallax view or comes a horseman are starting over. You had a great career in my opinion. And I feel like he should be talked about more. I think they're starting to, there was a documentary made about him uh, in 2019 that still hasn't been released. And I think it just recently found a distributor, but, and that's one of the clips that we talked about on the clue behind the scenes that is from that documentary um mm-hmm. so hopefully that'll happen soon and hopefully they can t- people continue to kind of find pakula's work specifically that paranoia trilogy john trilogy that i think is still kind of relevant for today's era yeah
1: yeah and i think he continued obviously we, we said there's more attention from the criterion collection um i think for obvious reasons in the last couple of years the interest in P- conspiracy uh, all the president's <laughs> yeah, Men yeah. has has risen yep um yeah i think his i think obviously with people revisiting specifically the paranoia trilogy i think you can see that his films not only was stood the test of time but but you know are, are those those really unique types of films that, that have improved um over the years
0: and i think and also just to go with the visual style people like gordon willis i think that style has improved in terms of uh taste i think people mm-hmm. prefer that dark brooding style in our modern context But maybe in the 70s when they're voting for the Oscars, those old, old people from the Golden Age of Hollywood weren't too fond of Gordon Willis. I can't see
1: their eyes. Why can't I see their eyeballs? Yeah.
0: So I feel like that's that was it. Um, But yeah, let's move on to stats for Pakula. Uh, Say this real quick. Eight actors receive Oscar nominations for roles in the Pakula film. So averaged out every other film garnered someone with garnered an actor, actress with the Oscar nomination two of which one fonda for clute and street for sophie's choice um so yeah that's pretty good track record um mm-hmm. and then go to stats what's the uh highest top three highest rated films according to our Letterboxd box list
1: all the presidents man
0: number one at a 4.1 clute clute number two with a
1: 3.8 sophie's choice
0: no that's number four i don't think
1: it's parallax for you uh, it is
0: parallax <laughs> it is
1: parallax for you okay at uh, 3.7 all right there's some trilogy completionists on yeah. the uh on letterbox uh
0: it's a 3.7 for parallax A 3.6 for sophie's choice uh the one at the bottom is consenting adults with kevin klein from 1992 mm. at 2.6 could be worse at 2.6 honestly 2.6 is not yeah not terrible um uh most popular Presence man, all the presents number one with uh 91,000 watches. Sadly, not that high, or yeah, it could be higher.
1: Uh, Clute and Parallax View,
0: Clute is number two. Parallax View is not number three. Sophie's Choice, Sophie's Choice is number three. Hey, Sophie's Choice has 30,000 watches, Parallax View only has 18,000 watches. Uh, the lowest, lowest watch movie, Orphans.
1: Hmm.
0: Starring Albert Finney and Matthew Modine.
1: Did they have that poster at USC? That poster looks so I familiar. I think to me. so. Yeah. That poster looks so familiar. I right. yeah. Some of those movies, you know, all the years in those hallways, they're just ingrained in my head.
0: Yeah. I know. You're just like, yeah, it was on the third floor in the Spielberg building.
1: <laughs> um
0: yeah, I, I feel like uh in most most appearances, I feel like it's probably Jane Fonda. Jane Fonda is in a, a lot of Hume Cronin. He is not a good bit. Let's see. Let me look at him real quick. But Fonda's in three.
1: Two for Jason Robards. Two
0: for Jason Robards. Two for Kevin
1: Klein.
0: It's a tie. Hume Cronin and Jane Fonda.
1: Ah, he had three?
0: He had three. He had Parallax View, Rollover, also starring Jane Fonda, and the Pelican Brief. Mm. So there you go. Hume Cronin and Jane Fonda. Um, all right. Final director questions. Is Pakula an auteur?
1: You know, I don't know. We just we just watched that clip that was like or this professor was like he's not an auteur and that's OK. Um, and, you know, that's the thing. When you look at the when you look at the. The uh, Paranoia Trilogy, the fact that Willis was there, too. I think loans a lot to it, you know, you, you go back and watch some of these that Willis wasn't on and you're like, OK, how much of the paranoia trilogy visually was. Yeah.
0: Was was Willis. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, so that's something that is tough. I think he, I think he was someone who definitely had uh, an interest. Like definitely had the, the films that he was interested in. But as, as we've seen, he, he took films outside of that interest. And in that clip we watched kind of Steven Soderbergh was praising him for being someone who just kind of did projects he was interested in without thinking of what his overall voice you know would come off as and and so yeah i think i think he's someone that you can point to and say like that's an alan j peculiar film but there's also films that he made that you can't do that so it's interesting i i, I don't think he necessarily would want to be known as an author yeah. necessarily
0: yeah I don't know. Yeah, it's, 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 it's the idea that because she talked about how he was, he's a very, they're, he's a very varied filmmaker, is mm-hmm. that he did a lot of stuff in the same genre, but then did a lot of stuff outside of the same genre. That's why it was so, when he did those three paranoia films, when he does a revisionist Western, people were like, hold on now. We didn't want this. This is not you. Give us more paranoia. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. What are his running themes?
1: Paranoia. Paranoia.
0: <laughs> there you go uh and and good scimitar from gordon willis uh.
1: <laughs> um, but uh i mean yeah, obviously the conspiracy kind of runs throughout many of these um i think trusting your gut is is one even you know that's that's something that runs through even like sophie's choice like you were talking about you know stingo should have just stuck with his initial impression of um of kevin klein um yeah that's that's it it's it's so hard because he has that trilogy that is so cohesive yeah um that you want to relate a lot of his voice back to that when 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 he did touch on many other things
0: yeah uh no i agree i th- I think that's that's all there um how does Pakula fit into this genre
1: i mean I think he made the godfather of of all journalism films
0: I, 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 yeah i think for to to have people still come back to this movie um and still praise it as much as they do and still be i mean it's still i said it's still a masterpiece i still think it even the choices that are made in the script from goldman and just the direction stuff it's so the way they end it is just i don't know if you end that movie nowadays that way mm-hmm. like it's the it's because the story's not fully complete but i think it's a smart choice of like hey you guys all know what happened. You all were here. You don't need that. You just need the you just mm-hmm. need the the part you don't know. You know yeah, the aftermath, exactly. you don't know the investigation part. All right, concluding the journalism genre, what did you learn this month, Thomas? You know, I
1: wasn't I wasn't expecting like we said like the ethics to be as pervasive of this genre as it is. Yeah, this is one of those genres I hadn't really thought about and and like we said you know, you the there's such a stereotype in like cop movies to have the the captain that's like give me your badge and gun, and it's it's funny now to look back and be like that is the editor role, um, and, and you know like we said, I think a lot of especially in the in the late '60s, early '70s, when a lot of these, this stuff was like don't trust the system, I think a lot of what we know about the cop genre rolled over into these journalism movies, and I think Parallax View is a big proponent of that because i i I read that the book it's based on his Beatty's character was a cop and and, um, it was Mm. it was pecula who said let's make him a detective i mean let's make him a a journalist so i think that that was a huge part of it yeah um but yeah especially within these like mystery mystery investigative journalism movies it's when you start looking back at it you're like oh this is a this is a detective more. yeah and and for the time being at least in the 70s especially after watergate we could society could point to these journalists and say these are the people doing the real detective work now um so it's yeah it, it, it's definitely a, a very specific moment in time when everyone kind of rallied behind Journalists, uh, the yeah, media, yeah, yeah, instead yeah. of maybe against them, yeah. Um, but it's it's something that has continued, and you know, um, like Spotlight specifically yeah. is a is a movie that that really picked up where all the, the legacy of all the president's men and kind of followed it in this way that it, it's like matter of fact, we're going to tell you what the story was behind this investigation, and I think the paper tried to. I I didn't. Um, you mean The Post or love. The Post or The Paper? I mean The Post. Yeah. I not love The Post. I do not love it The Post fine. either.
0: I, I think good um, performances. I think Spielberg is always going to give you a well-crafted film, uh, but it doesn't it doesn't feel as bold as, say, All the President's Men does.
1: I think The Post and Bridge of Spies are two excellent examples of Spielberg's dad movie era. Just really killing
0: it enjoyable but like i'm not gonna talk about when talking about the greatest spielberg of all time yeah i said they're 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 well made i think they have good performances they're 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 not bad that's what i'm trying to say they're not bad they're just not on par with other things he's done anyway but back to the journalism thing uh you talked about ethics i agree completely i think the other idea that i found out more when watching these films is the idea of like broadcast news specifically about the changing of news and information to entertainment kind of based news mm-hmm. it's like that's a big part of, and how like new you had to make money through the news how you do that you can't just give them information you have to sens- sensationalize it in some way and that becomes apparent in broadcast news that was apparent it's kind of talked about in the paper a little bit oddly even kind of talked about in citizen 4 briefly Edward Snowden talks about how like the news will be delivered by personalities or is being delivered by personalities right now. It's not about the information. And I'm like, that's, that's been a running theme of like how our news is delivered. And I think very relevant for today of how news is delivered from news anchors to broadcast journalists to the just journalist. Um, and, and now oddly too how everyone can be a journalist sometimes and mm-hmm. it's all with, with the internet and how we can just got to create, uh, hot sensationalized uh, uh, headlines for people and that can be shared instantly on Facebook and all these places anyway won't go into that um but what are some of your favorite journalism films we did not mention final question
1: well speaking of that one one that I I really love that really has nothing to do with like journalism ethics and everything to do with like viewing journalism as a way to become famous mm-hmm. um is to die for
0: oh with uh, you Nicole Kidman
1: Nicole Kim and Joaquin Phoenix. Mm-hmm. That's that's just a really fun kind of like dark I don't know, dark comedy yeah. kind of yeah. You know? Um but I really enjoyed that movie, especially to see the two of them, especially see like Joaquin is young. And um and I gotta bring it back up, Fletch. I love Fletch, <laughs> I've always loved Fletch. Fantastic movie. Um and one you, you think, especially because of the way the sequel went, you kind of think of it as being this like really spoofy like not serious at all but you go back and watch it and like the case itself and the mystery is very well done yeah it's just chevy chase being chevy chase while yep. he's while he's going through it um
0: yep uh yeah. let's see what i mean one i'll mention network i could oh, mention course. network more and more um because it's, it's a phenomenal film and it's also highly relevant today one that i like an older one i'm a shout out to It's a movie called Deadline USA and it stars Humphrey Bogart and it's an interesting film because it it makes a few choices that I don't think most films would have made at this point. Directed by Richard Brooks who did the adaptation of In Cold Blood and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Blackboard Jungle, a lot of great films. Uh, It's one of Bogart's later films but it's basically three days before his paper folds he decides like yo, I'm going to expose this gangster in like New York. And if I'm going to try to keep the paper open, hopefully this story promotes enough sales that will keep going. But if we're going to go out, I'm going to go out with a great story, unveiling the truth about this person and hmm. really underrated film. It takes, like I said, take some, take some, some, some turns, not seen a lot, not available. In a lot of places, but I saw it on TCM a few years ago. Um, so, nice. yeah, I think that's the ones to check out. That's it for journalism movies, Thomas. It's been a month. It's been a long month. Uh, but next month, by popular demand, from my Instagram questions that I do, uh, we are bringing back a genre that we talked about, I think, two, almost two years ago now. It was early one, it feels like. Um, and that, my friends, will be the fictional band slash singer genre. Um, as I did a recent Instagram poll uh about what people's favorite fictional band movies were and people had a lot to say a lot to <laughs> say so for me we'll be covering such films i don't think i told you some of these uh, my pick was that thing you do thomas so so be ready oh, of course yeah you knew it was coming i, I, I never doubted <laughs> that thing you do almost famous walk hard we're not gonna do a director episode because there's not many directors who have worked in the band uh <laughs> genre but we're gonna finish out the month probably with josie and the pussycats which mm. as thomas knows is very relevant right now in the world yeah <laughs> <laughs> look it up guys uh so we have a variety for you guys so make sure you start watching your favorite band movies for the month um so yeah that's all we have for you in this episode make sure you subscribe to the nation podcast on Apple podcast spotify stitcher or wherever your podcast, and if you haven't already, make sure you write us a review on whatever platform you listen to the show on. We've
1: been getting some reviews coming in, and it's it's great to hear from everyone. And like I like I've been saying, it boosts our visibility. It really helps us to get out there. But also, we just. We love the validation. If you're validating us, <laughs> if you're critiquing us, we love the critiques. You yeah. know, we've been doing this a long time, and we're obviously open to change. We've changed the format of the show several times. Several times. So, we like doing it. Let us know.
0: Yeah, like the review we got recently from an Australian listener, because we're very we're, we're, we're international. Thomas, people don't know this. We're Mister Worldwide. We're Mister Worldwide big in sweden this past two months honestly it was kind of shocking we were up on the sweden list for a bit for film history uh we had a review from an australian listener says an excellent informed rundown on director peter weir very much appreciated five stars enjoyable thank you so much for that review we had a blast doing it we did uh and hopefully you guys if you haven't written a review already please do it helps us out tremendously as thomas said um so yeah if you haven't already, make sure you like us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And I think that's it. Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me.
1: Absolutely. For CineNation News, <laughs> this is Thomas Horton signing off.
0: <laughs> uh, and thank you all for listening. We hope to listen to more episodes soon.
1: You stay classy. You, you, stay, you cla- stay classy. You classy, You
0: stay classy, Nation audience. Thanks. Bye.